All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is the introduction for episode 139. Jason Lindgren is with me, and we're going to go whole hog into predicting the effects of technology on our very near future. We're going to do it based partially on logic and partially on real-world examples. We've had to push a lot of this to the second hour, um, as you will hear in the opening. We just got more censorship from YouTube. But anyhow, this is a very interesting episode. And to cut to the chase, unemployment is going to be a huge factor in the automation of technology in our near future. But let's jump in with Jason Lindgren into episode 139. There it is. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 139. I have Jason Lingren with me. Today, we're going to talk a bit about the soon-to-come, which is a bad way to say it, effects of technology on our world. I've referenced Frank Herbert uh, on this podcast a number of times, primarily because all the way back in, I think it's like 65, I always act like it's the 50s, but I'm pretty sure Dune came out in 65 or something like that. Um he he talks about a thing called the Butlerian Jihad, where there's like this universe-wide war over computers. Uh, when the war is complete, no one's allowed to have a computer. And if you're caught with a computer, you can be put to death. Of course, you know, the, the high and mighty still maintain them. But how could Frank Herbert possibly have known uh, in the 60s what technology was going to become? And for my part, there's two options. He was an insider. He logicked it out. Um, I'm going to work on the premise that he logicked it out, and Jason and I are going to apply some logic uh, to try to predict some of the coming things that will indicate where technology is coming us, come or bringing us. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Coming to you via technology that didn't exist a short time ago. Hello, Crow. Indeed. <laughs> How goes it, man? Oh, just peachy. How are you? I'm good. Let's jump right in here. Um, We've got quite a bit to cover, but we're going to introduce a new segment, which we're going to try to include in in both the shows that we do, the Sunday night show and this one. Um, It's called Human Services Announcement for Higher-Minded Living Beings. Yeah, that's right. It's a mouthful. We say it that way for a reason. Um, I'm going to let Jason um, start the Human Services Announcement, and we're going to cover aspartame. It's a very short segment that will lead us into the show. Go ahead, Jason. Aspartame is an artificial non-saccharide sweetener used as a sugar substitute in some foods and beverages. It is currently sold under the brand names NutraSweet and Equal. This chemical substance changes into formaldehyde in the body and has been linked to migraines, seizures, vision loss, and symptoms relating to lupus, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, and, no doubt, other health-destroying conditions. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved aspartame for use in food and drink back in 1981. Thank you so very much, Donald Rumsfeld. In 1985, Monsanto purchased G.D. Searle, the chemical company that held the patent to aspartame, the active ingredient in NutraSweet. Monsanto was apparently untroubled by aspartame's clouded past, including the report of a 1980 FDA Board of Inquiry, comprised of three independent scientists, which confirmed that it might induce brain tumors. The FDA had previously banned aspartame based on this finding, only to have then-Searle chairman Donald Rumsfeld vow to call in his markers to get it approved. When Searle was absorbed by Monsanto in 1985, Donald Rumsfeld reportedly received a $12 million bonus, which was quite a substantial amount of money in those days still is today. 
More amusing things on Rumsfeld. During his tenure at Searle, he reduced the number of employees in the company by 60%. The financial turnaround of the company earned him awards as outstanding CEO in the pharmaceutical industry from the Wall Street transcript and financial world. All right, there it is, man. This is a short segment we're going to include. In short, we just told you about aspartame. Um, Let's cut to the chase here. Should you be eating aspartame? I'm afraid only you can decide that for yourself. But real quickly, Jason, um, off the top of our heads, is there some commonly used products we can inform people that contain aspartame? For my part, I used to love to chew gum. It is nearly impossible to find chewing gum without aspartame. Can you think of anything off the top of your head that's frequently used product that has aspartame in it, Jason? Nearly all diet sodas. All diet sodas. There it is. Um, Anyhow, there's your human services announcement for higher-minded living beings. And thank you very much, Donald Rumsfeld. Anyhow, there's the new segment. So let's talk about some major YouTube censorship here before we jump in. Once again, they're pulling some nonsense. They seem to be doing it in a little softer way than they did last year. But once again, you have got a video flagged for being inappropriate. That would be episode number 44. Right. Episode 44 was censored yesterday, um, today being uh, December the 17th. So on December 16th, I got the notice that the video was censored. Uh, Here's the rub. And I'll tell you how they censored it, which is kind of a soft pedal compared to what we saw a year ago, where a year ago they deleted your video and gave you a strike for your troubles. Actually, a year ago they deleted my channel before tons of people complained. And actually, many people are complaining on episode 44 because it is ridiculous that it is censored for the following reason. It has had roughly 14,000-some views. 380-some people thumbsed up the video. A mere 34 thumbed it down. So... From my point of view, the people spoke, and this is unjustified censorship. Um, Jason, there's another aspect to this that we should cover. Uh, For people who own their own YouTube channels, when they logged in over the last 10 days or so, they were notified that their sub count was going to be reduced. It is an artificial reduction uh, by full admission of YouTube. In other words, the only real effect it's going to have is when people come to your channel, you will appear to have less subscribers. They use the excuse of third-party companies paying to get subs and things like closed accounts is their excuse. We were told this would occur on the 13th and the 14th of December. I, in fact, had a negative gain of 130 subs on the 12th, and then on top of that, I lost another 230. I wrote down my sub count on the 12th. Um, I saw a positive gain according to the stats that YouTube provides on the 13th and the 14th when, in fact, we were supposed to lose the subs. And to this day, from the 12th to the 17th, I have gained seven subscribers on my channel. So the nonsense continues, Jason. And there you have it, folks. They're trying to find ways to come at us without being so blatant about it that everybody squawks in a huge way. But no doubt, this is still censorship. It is absolutely censorship. And to put a frame of reference for my channel, on an average day, I get near 100 subscribers every day. And of course, there is a supposed sub-loss count. As a matter of fact, every day we upload, every Thursday when I upload the first hour of the podcast, all the numbers jump except for subscribers. And that is not historically true. That is also something new from YouTube. Point being that on the 12th, 
um, which was a day early for this censorship. They reduced my sub count. And since then, all the way till today, the 17th, I have gained seven subscribers when historically I can show that nearly every day I pick up almost 100 subscribers on many days, much more than that. But anyhow, let's jump into the episode. I'm sick of YouTube censorship. Do we call poppycock? Yeah, man. All day long, we call poppycock. All right. It is a strange moment indeed when one realizes fully the role of science fiction in our world. This includes books and movies going back to the earliest examples we can find. It is not enough to count the ways, as it is important to understand how much of the modern world is attributed to the fictitious genre we call science fiction. And at the base of all technology stories you will find, in most cases, science fiction is acting as the vehicle that delivers the concepts to your mind. After all, the first moon landing was brought to us as fiction. Written by Jules Verne and in 1902, it inspired film director Georges Méliès to make one of the first ever films showing people going to the moon. So, where is the Man Goes to the Moon story now in the modern age? And, if it is possible to answer this question, where does that leave technology also invented in science fiction? It seems to have reached the point where we must ask, how much of science is fiction. There it is, man. How much of modern science that we accept as factual is fiction? And the example we use here is way back at the turn of the 1900s, Jules Verne puts out some sci-fi about people going to the moon. One of the very first motion pictures ever made by the Millet brothers echoes that idea. Then we get up to the 60s in this country, and we're shown once again via video people going to the moon. So as we go through this, we're going to point out all the predictions, or not that's not true, not all of them, but a bunch of predictions um, that science fiction writers made up, and they became mainstays in what we accept to be true. And by the way, satellites is one of these things. The movie Metropolis is often cited as the first science fiction movie. It was released on January 10th, 1927, for those who would count the ways, with a runtime of 116 minutes. As with so many of the science fiction novels, we have covered that this film, too, predicts where technology will go. Or perhaps pre-echoes is a better way to describe it. In the film, a robot named Maria has the purpose of leading workers to their doom. Although hard to nail down, the band Queen seems to have had rights to use the film for their 1984 album, the works, and particularly the song Radio Gaga. And of course, the so-called star Lady Gaga found enough meaning in the Metropolis idea to create her stage name based on Queen's song covering the prophetic film Metropolis. It would seem some very powerful so-called stars see particular value in the film Metropolis, which will feed into this episode as we logically break down where technology will go and whether or not that is good or not for human beings. Let's cut to the chase. It's not going to be good. There's nothing about this that's going to be good unless something significantly changes. And this is a prime example. Uh, The movie Metropolis, which so many people are familiar with, is often cited as being the first science fiction movie. Um, You can count the ways all day long in its release date, January 10, 1927. And of course, the runtime is 116. We can thank Marty McFly at the Twin Pines for showing us what that idea is all about. Can we not? 
But anyhow, when you get megastars like Queen apparently acquiring some portion of the rights to make their album The Works, and particularly the song Radio Gaga, and then later mega superstar Lady Gaga taking her name from this very song that uses Metropolis as the idea, and the underpinning idea here is that a robot is leading workers to their doom. Um, these are prophetic things, and for my part, they're created. It's not really a prediction; it's an intent that is held in all this early work of sci-fi. But let's jump into the writer of Dune here, Jason. Frank Herbert, who wrote the science fiction book Dune, also pre-echoed where technology will take us. There is an obliquely referenced war in the Dune storyline called the Butlerian Jihad that seems to have occurred before the timeline presented as the book unfolds. The idea communicated is that a massive war was fought over computers and thinking machines, and as a result, after the war, anyone caught with such technology could be put to death. Although the rich and powerful families and organizations secretly held on to the technology. We would ask how Frank Herbert could have possibly understood where computer technology was headed all the way back in 1965. Did he have an inside line in power circles, or did he simply logic it out? We are of a mind that he could have used logic to determine where technology will lead us, and will further assert that we can do the same thing now to show that technology, as we see it now, will slowly deprive human beings of what it is to be human. So we mentioned Dune a lot here. One of the main reasons is, and it's held up as maybe some of the best sci-fi ever written. I don't think I would argue with that,、uh, but it's an allegory. It's an absolute allegory, one to one, for the world we live in. So much of the actual existence you and I are living right now is a metaphor, a simile, an allegory in the book called Dune. So back in '65,、um, he mentions a war that occurs before his book takes place, where a war is fought over computers. Basically,、uh, the war is fought; it is won, and after that war, called the Butlerian Jihad, anyone caught with a computer can be put to death. But of course, the royal families, the powerful, the Benny Jesserits, and these types of folks have computers that they hide and use as they will,、um, and that's a Heck of a thing when you think that that was released. I believe the book was released in something like 1965. In past episodes, we have shown how many of the earliest science fiction writers existed in and around circles of power. H.G. Wells is one excellent example who put forth many of the notions that became standards in so many ways. Let's talk about the aspects and contributions of who were considered the big three of English language science fiction writers: Robert Heinlein. Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke. These are names you are most likely already familiar with. Starting with Robert Heinlein, in the framework of his science fiction stories, he frequently addressed the same social themes. These are the importance of individual liberty and self-reliance, the obligation individuals owe to their societies, the influence of organized religion on culture and government, and the tendency of society to repress nonconformist thought. He also predicted the Cold War. His work also speculated on the influence of space travel on human cultural practices. Heinlein is still considered a major influencer in the modern age in many ways. So let me pick on the other two guys that I always confuse here. You're always correcting me between Clark and Asimov. I always interchange them. I'm not sure why, but I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jason, is Arthur C. Clarke that worked with Stanley Kubrick on 2001. Do I have that correct? That is correct. 
Okay, so Arthur C. Clarke is instrumental in putting forth the movie 2001, which of course is released right as we're doing the whole moon landing thing. Um, and here's an interesting thing about that. Um, not, not once again, what we see as reality or we're told as reality in the world is being pre-echoed in a sci-fi movie, a very well done sci-fi movie. As a matter of fact, the best done sci-fi movie up to that time. Um, at the end of that movie, in the original runs back there in the 60s or 70s, and I guess it was late 60s when it came out, there were all these thank yous to NASA um, at the end of 2001, which have since been stripped. When you see that movie now, you don't see any of that. And as a matter of fact, Kubrick goes on to make another movie, which is a period piece. It's a guy's name. Do you remember the movie, Jason? Barry Lyndon. Yeah, Barry Lyndon, and there are thank yous to NASA that most people can still see for the special lenses, uh, which were one of the driving forces. So you can see how this kind of science fiction invents a thing, they make it real through media, and then it gets assimilated into our timeline. But I will ask again, is science becoming fiction? Are the things we believe to be true actually fictitious? We'll know more as we move in here. Now let's take a look at Isaac Asimov, who is another fiction writer who seems to have come up with a number of the things that are not yet invented, that we know of, and a good case study of where technology could and more than likely will lead us all. He is considered one of the fathers of robotics due to his robot book series and is credited with birthing two concepts, positronic robots and the actual word robotics. So here we have guys again um, inventing things that don't even exist as anything more than a science fiction idea between Asimov and Clark. And again, I'm going to get these guys backwards, Jason. Uh, much of the telecom industry and the idea of satellites is invented. So I guess I'll ask the challenging mind before we move on here. Um, do satellites exist as they're described? I would suggest that they do not, and I've even invented a law, much like I think it's Asimov, I'm going to get these guys backwards again, who is going to present us with the laws of robotics, but Jason will correct me if I'm wrong there. The word robot itself seems to be derived from Czech words meaning slave, serf and worker, or forced labor. The acclaimed Czech playwright, Karol Kapek, seems to be the one who made famous the word robot. Kapek introduced the word in his play R.U.R., or Rossum's Universal Robots, which was first performed in Prague in the year 1921. Capex play presents a paradise in which robotic machines initially provide many benefits for humans, but also bring an equal amount of blight in the form of unemployment and social unrest. Does this sound familiar? I mean, how do you ring a bell that loud back in 1921? Employment is going to be one of the predictions that I lay down here that are going to prove what the automation and robotics and AI are going to do to our world. And I'm going to tell you that I'd be very surprised if we don't start seeing it in five, certainly less than 10 years from now. Um, and this is based on actual companies that exist now that have not existed for that long, but have become very wealthy in a short period of time and are already working on total automation. And the third of our big three, Arthur C. Clarke first proposed the notion of artificial satellites in 1945. And should we ask, do satellites exist as Clarke described, or was it his description that is now used to delude us all? Looking back to Asimov, in the same way he invented the three laws of robotics, which we will cover shortly, Crow has invented a law of his own designed to help assess the reality of so many things in the modern age, and he calls it the law of high definition. And it goes as follows. 
Anything that truly exists in the modern era that can be filmed in HD will be filmed in HD. This is a critical thing. This is a critical, critical thing because as I began to challenge so much of the world around us, you have to develop rules. Otherwise, you're just guessing. And they can't just be rules at random. They have to be proved effective time and time again. In other words, you have to be able to replicate your finding for an idea like this to be valid. I have replicated and validated this idea so many times I can't count. And the prime example here would be satellites. Has anyone ever seen HD footage of an amazing satellite in outer space doing what amazing satellites do? Surely you have. Surely an astronaut on the ISS has posted, poked their iPhone out the window to show us one of these thousands of amazing satellites. I'm just saying here, um, this is a valid law. I've tested it, and anyone can use it to try to suss out whether a thing we're being told in the modern age is true or not. There's a funny thing about science and technology that we noticed a long time ago in our world. It seeks to convince you that it is almost magical in its nature, that it can do all these things that a common sense mind would not accept for a second. Yet we've all been trained so thoroughly coming through school that common sense doesn't come into the consideration of what we're being told. We think of all the movies that have shown technology. We think of all the high-end math and all these guys in lab coats and all these things we can imagine that have come to our minds to assess whether or not it's believable that technology can do this, that, or the other thing. And I will suggest to you here and now that technology can't do nearly the number of things you've been convinced that it can. So let's blow out this notion a bit more. The concept behind it is actually quite simple. Technology has progressed that it is considerably more likely than not that any Western person will be walking around with a high-definition camera built in to the seemingly mandatory notion that everyone will have on their person at almost all times a rather sophisticated mobile communication device. This does not include the incredibly powerful and sophisticated capabilities of professional digital cameras that also come in numerous shapes and sizes. Which brings us to a simple question. Have you ever seen HD video of amazing satellites in space or really anything in space doing what they do or being stunningly amazing as they should be? And the answer, of course, as you just said, is no, which is a foundation we can work from to begin challenging ideas like the existence of satellites. A mere four years ago, Crow made a video addressing satellites, and at that time, Google Returns claimed roughly 20,000 of them in space, with an unknown number of broken satellites also supposedly being in orbit around the Earth. Currently, depending on your location, Google will tell you that there are now only 1,100 satellites. And make no mistake, Google manipulates the responses you receive in many ways. But the point we are asking here is, do satellites exist as described by Clark, or is Clark's description as a science fiction writer and futurist being used as a baseless narrative designed to convince minds that satellites exist as described? I don't know what I can add here. I can offer the law of high definition, which I created for myself, but each person out there will have to come to their own conclusion. I'm not the be-all and end-all, uh, but I do know how to apply logic. So there it is. Do satellites exist as they're described, or is it more likely that a sci-fi writer named Arthur C. Clarke gave a description that is now accepted as true without a shred of actual hard physical evidence? 
One of the next huge leaps in the way we all live will be driven by automation and robotics. And for this, we must look to the science fiction writer Isaac Asimov again, who invented the three laws of robotics, still currently held up as valid for some reason. The three laws of robotics are as follows. So what we're about to tell you here is we're now on the cusp of actual real robots coming into our world, and they're only going to get better as time goes on, and we all know this to be correct, unless something major changes in our world. But how is it that a science fiction writer came up with the three laws of robotics, which are now held up as definitive, even in the technology and the real-world science side of things? But I'm going to poke holes in that, too, because if we want to listen to the mainstream, the first law of robotics, which is the foundation of all of it, has already been violated. But I'll do that later. The first law. A robot may not injure a human being or, through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. Second law, a robot must obey the orders given it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Third law, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. Here's one of the things about these laws. So they're supposedly written as somebody's inventing what robots might become someday, supposedly. At least that's how we're told it starts. But when you say the word robot, you're making a lot of assumptions. And we'll get to that in a minute. And one of the questions I would ask here is when we think of robots now, a lot of people will think about the earliest ones that we can point out, which is the automotive assembly line, right? Those are considered robots. But I would ask, are those robots or are those simply machines programmed to do a task? There is an additional law that would require the computer or robot to be an incredibly sophisticated thinking machine for it to even comprehend it, which is as follows. Law Xeroth. A robot may not injure humanity or, through inaction, allow humanity to come to harm. And of course, this would mean that it could make sophisticated decisions. Yeah, it's kind of reworking what Asimov laid down here, right? It's kind of reworking that, but this is the case and the point. For a robot to even be able to follow these ideas, there's uh, an implication that it, it understands or it's it doesn't understand. It's processing the surroundings around it. For that matter, it presupposes that a robot has been programmed to understand exactly what it would be to injure a human being. So let's move on from there. The big thing with the Asimov stuff is this. In his science fiction world, he came up with a technology called the positronic brain, which you heard echoed in a lot of other science fiction, most especially well-known in Star Trek with Data. Right. And the positronic brain is supposed to be the thing that gives the robot the technological equivalent of consciousness, which is the one part that I think you and I will agree is never going to happen. No. It's not. We'll, we'll prove it later. Right. Real computers and machines and robots and all those things will get so fast that it will appear that it's capable of consciousness and conscious thought and decision making. But what it's really doing is just crunching data at a remarkable rate to the point that it will seem like it's interacting with you in the way you would with another human being. And it's just not true that they're not going to be alive. It's a bit like impressions, right? You know, so many people want to say that this famous personage or that one is not the gender you think they are. It's the same idea. Um, can your eyes be convinced that you're 
assuming a wrong thing about that thing you're looking at. And AI and robots are going to be no different. It's just going to come down to how well they can respond and mimic. But at no time will they ever be alive. And I'll, I'll endeavor to show that as we move forward here. It is worth noting that there are already claims that the first law of robotics has been violated. If this is true at this early stage of automation, one might ask, what good are the laws in the first place? But it seems we can challenge even this idea as one of the accounts was at an automotive assembly line with a so-called robot and the other a Tesla car with automated driving engaged. Was the automotive assembly line machine really a robot or was it a machine programmed to complete certain tasks? In other words, was this so-called robot programmed to monitor its environment and, by extension, any human that might get in the way? I suppose it could also be asked, is this just more false news? We can certainly apply the same logic to the Tesla car accident that claims to have beheaded and killed a man after the sensors failed to ID a semi-truck and drove right through it broadside at approximately 70 miles per hour. Are these really robots? It is a hard question to nail down, but we can certainly understand that they are very low-tech examples of where robotics is about to go. But even low-tech automation can be shown to be the vanguard of the coming impacts on humanity we can logically expect to occur. So from my mind, this is doing what so much of science does. Um, when you look at that supposed robotic arm or whatever you want to call it in an assembly line, for the most part, from my point of view, you're looking at a machine that's been programmed to do certain tasks. And in my mind, that is not a robot. Um, the idea of a robot is that it's aware or programmed to sense its surroundings. So the idea that this supposed human being could have got between this arm doing its job and a table or a wall, whatever it was, and be crushed kind of demonstrates what I'm about here. It's really no different than somebody in a piece of heavy equipment backing up, not seeing a person and running them over. Same thing going on from my point of view. Is that heavy equipment a robot? No, it most certainly isn't. And this is part of what we're getting at where the Tesla car, um, there's all these auto, there's all these massive companies now working on automation of driving. And this is going to be one of the forerunners that is logically deducible that will show what technology is about to do to major portions of the population when cars can drive themselves. But I would ask again, if a car's sensors fails to recognize an object and hits it, is that a robot killing a human being? Or is that just some kind of low-level detection um, at the point now that we exist. Uh, I would suggest to you that what we have seen thus far doesn't really qualify to the level of what most people think a robot should be. Again, I'm going to point out that what these laws seem to go around is this poetic notion of robots being mechanical people. Right. They're the technological equivalent of a living thing. And it's just not true. What we're talking about here are machines with sophisticated sensors and things that just aren't working properly. It's not making decisions in any way, shape, or form. And the laws of robotics are about making decisions and things like that. So they're not mechanical people. They are just tools that have more tools attached to them. So things like, say, Star Wars, where you're interacting with the droids in a way that they almost have feelings and things like that. No, these, this is not reality, and it's not ever going to be reality as far as I can tell. No, it's it, this is what we're what, this is what we're about. It's science fiction weaving a, an erroneous web in the minds of almost the entire world. 
Um, the idea of Star Trek with their positronic brain. It's not good enough to call it a robot or a droid anymore. Now we've got to try to really imply that it's becoming organic and alive, right? That's the narrative being spun. So now we're going to call it a positronic brain. Um, but let's keep moving on from here, Jason. There's some predictions that we're going to make uh, that, that should happen within the next handful of years, maybe maybe a bit further, based on what we can see major companies doing. Um, and maybe to some degree, it's already going on. It's just that most of us haven't really focused on it yet. Another of the early examples of automation we can look at is the invention of computer touchscreens. And while this relatively low-tech advancement seems benign enough, it is actually the beginning of employment loss for untold numbers of people. It has already started to reduce jobs in the United States, and places like Japan are whole hog into the automation and replacement of people who used to provide face-to-face -face services. Yeah, you know, usually there's so much positive you could say about the Japanese culture being in tune with nature, but part of that culture is their love of AI and anything robotic, um, which is a bit of a shame. Here's one of the predictions I'm going to make. Uh, the vanguard for the coming effects on human populations and unemployment is going to have been started with touchscreens. Most people can probably remember the first time they saw a fast food joint or somewhere else where the touchscreen had replaced the person taking the money or the order or these type of things. And while the touchscreen is really kind of very low tech at this point, it is where it all starts. It is, in fact, a form of automation. It's just requiring you to give it the input still. And we're about to move on from there. But in the research that I did, you can already start to deduce that a lot of jobs have been lost simply from the advancement of the computer touchscreen. Another early example of the coming technical revolution is truck driving and transport. Once considered jobs with huge amounts of freedom, these ideas are quickly becoming a thing of the past. Now the employer can dictate when you take breaks, get gas, how far you can travel, monitor where you stop, and so on. In short, Big Brother is right there in the passenger seat next to you, and all this control that did not exist a decade ago is about to be replaced with automated vehicles. Now, anyone who's related to the driving industry can verify this all day long, and while it might not be touching every single truck driver or people who drive for a living like taxis, um, you can see it in most of your neighborhood these days when the UPS guy drives up with his little computer in his hand. He is, in fact, being tracked. He can't stop anywhere he wants. He can't take a break anywhere he wants, and before long... I'm sorry to say, part of my prediction here is that UPS driver is not going to be needed. Um, that truck or some other method will be driving or operating itself to do the mundane task of delivering packages. Can you imagine in the United States alone how many people make their living driving? And we're going to get into this more using places like Uber as the example. Uber has not been with us that long, but it's about to put a dent in the way we live. That's right. Uber is still a relatively new thing in our world, but in its short existence, it has already had a drastic effect on millions of taxi drivers, among others. Uber has been so successful, in fact, it is already working and testing automated cars that require no driver, as is Tesla, of course, and many other large corporations that we could cite. How many millions of people will become unemployed when automated trucking, taxis, and vehicles in general start showing up on our roads in force? It is certainly, and logically, headed in this direction. 
I don't think it can be argued unless there is a major, major change in this world we exist in. I think each of us can logically work out this is coming. So what are we talking about here? Tesla's been at it for a long time. As a matter of fact, I think Google's been at it for almost 20 years, 15 years, something like that. I can't remember how long ago uh, you first saw those Google cars with the monitors on them trying to complete a racetrack. But that was a heck of a long time ago. As a matter of fact, there could possibly be people listening to this podcast that weren't born when Google first started trying to automate. We're coming to that point, and we are talking about millions of human beings in this country that make their living from taxis or trucking or driving or shuttling or something to do delivery, driving a vehicle. When it comes to the point where technology is able to automate these things, do you suppose that the corporations will be concerned for all the people about to lose their jobs or for the bottom line because that self-driving car does not need time off, does not need health care, will never strike, will never pick it, none of these things? Which way do you think these major corporations will go? And I would suggest to you, we've already seen which way these corporations will go. It will always be for the bottom line. And again, just to put a fine dot on what we're saying here, this is many millions of people that would lose their jobs. I think health insurance is the big one that they're looking forward to not having to deal with anymore. Even that's a rigged game, right? The, the cost of health care in this, in this country. If there was true concern for living human beings, health care would not be the way it currently is, nor would it cost the way it does. Um, clearly, it's, it's all about profit and control. Because if it was for concern for a living being, it would not be impossible for people to get health care or to get health care at the level we currently see it in most places. So continuing on, we can logically predict that one of the early effects of high technology let loose in the world will be massive layoff of many millions of people due to automation. Logically, we can predict that the people most affected will be the largest portion of the population or those without higher learning college degrees, or training beyond basic high school. But then, technology and Big Brother are already taking over higher education. Most institutes of higher learning have become highly infested with certain kinds of strong political leanings designed to steer the attending student for the rest of their life. Also, let's ask how many online universities have sprung up in the last few years as well. Does anyone listening consider online higher education to be synonymous with attending an actual accredited university? It is not, and is generally viewed as such. Add in the rising cost of higher education in this technological age, and it is predictable that fewer people will be able to afford college degrees, which will, in turn, increase the number of people now facing unemployment due to automation of low-skill and repetitive jobs. Suffice it to say that an early observable effect of automation technology will be massive numbers of unemployed people. And when you logically work this out, it's not just massive numbers of unemployed people. It is the majority of the biggest segment of society currently in the United States, which is people without college degrees. And as we point out here, fewer and fewer people would even care to try to get a college degree because of the huge cost of it, which demonstrates once again, it's becoming to be a bit like a caste system. If you know somebody that's going to Harvard, it's almost certain that that is a very wealthy family that could afford to get their kid into Harvard. So for the rest of us, we have choices to make. Will I go to some lesser institution, which will put me in debt for maybe the rest of my life, 
because some of the college bills are getting to be that way? Or will I attend an online university, which is a pale shadow of that individual who went to, say, an Ivy League school? You can see where this all heads and you can, can see the controlling intent behind it. I invite anyone, try to poke a hole in the logic we're laying down here. Well, once again, we see the problem with the wealth gap, because yes, very wealthy people can still send their children to institutes of higher learning that will almost guarantee them a position in some sort of company or something to that effect that will guarantee perpetuity of their family's ties with big business and big government, but not the poor people. Right, right. Right now, um, if you attend that Ivy League school or other ones, you know, well-known universities that have been around for a long time, it really almost doesn't matter whether you're an intelligent individual or not. If you can show the degree from the prestigious university, you're going to get a, a good job, probably a very good job by the standards of most people. But that's not really the main issue, although it is, in fact, an issue, the problem with education, which has become a caste system, an open caste system, even though I suppose you could say most people could manage to get the loans to go to some university or another. Most of them are not going to get into the best universities, and the debt they walk away with is nearly crippling. Point being here that the largest segment of the United States society as it exists will be where we see massive layoffs from automation. And one of the other things you've probably heard of is this concept of a service economy, especially with the United States, that as they've been stripping away the industry that really started in the 1970s, we are to the point now where a lot of people don't work in production-style jobs, industry of some sort. People are basically giving money back and forth to each other in this service industry. But this automation thing is just another way to take that away, which is going to make yet another problem that needs to be dealt with. Well, think think even in, in our lifetimes, Jason, the idea that the United States will become a service economy. A few decades ago, that would have been unthinkable that the main thrust of the United States economy is people who serve other people. In other words, you do what I say, you serve me, you listen to me, but for life, because that is the basis for the whole economy. That, in fact, in my mind, echoes the amount of control that's been considered into all this when they began to dismantle the, the making of things, because this country used to make a lot of things, a lot of high-end things. Even go back to like the 50s or 60s and look at something as simple as a table lamp. Look at the quality and craftsmanship in that lamp. And look what we get now for a table lamp, a disposable piece of junk that was made in China. And by the way, you probably can't even really find a place in the United States anymore that manufactures Well, you, you might be able to find a few. I think you understand the point here. An active conscious decision was made to export what the United States did, which was make things, that was a big part of it, to another part of the world that's going to lower the quality of everything, and it's going to be replaced here, if things go as projected, by a service-based economy. Because of this making of junk and lack of availability of good, well-made things, this is why the whole kind of hipsterish thing is kind of springing up to some degree, because people want handcrafted things or nicer things made here or somewhere that's not mass-produced in some Asian factory. So you are seeing cultural repercussions of what's going on. But of course, you have to have a little more money available to you to be able to buy any of these products. 
buying craft beer versus, say, the mass-produced barely beer that's out there that's got a name that's been around for a long time, but quite honestly is the furthest thing from being what was traditionally made. Or like you said, a lamp, any of these things. They're starting to crop up a lot and have been more and more as the years have been going by. But you have to have a little more disposable income to get those things or else you're going to be at frickin' Walmart buying the cheap stuff because that's all you can afford. The Chinese junk, the manufacturing of Chinese junk, which most of it is by the standards that used to be in this country, is actually the lifeblood of the hyper-materialism that is coming to bear in our world. Uh, think about in this house that I live now, there is actually a freezer um, that was bought in the early 70s, still operating. Uh, I believe we've replaced two modern refrigerators in that time, and that's where the term engineered to fail comes from. How many of the big televisions um, that came out, the early flat screens, um, would fail, and the part that failed was a 50-cent capacitor or something like that? This feeds into the idea of the Chinese junk or the construction of this low-quality stuff that you can buy for a price you can afford, but it isn't going to last very long, which means you're going to need to buy more Chinese junk. Hyper-materialism, not the same as it was in the 60s when a family bought a sofa or a bed. Back in those days, those things were going to be around for a long time, and refrigerators are a great example. And although they certainly use more energy if they were made in that era, the point is there are many of them still functioning. How many appliances in the modern day do you buy that you could expect to be working in the year 2040? I'm just asking, man. Well, what you're referring to is the concept of planned obsolescence. Sure, it'll work for a short amount of time, usually just after the warranty period expires. And that's about it. Then you're right back to Walmart again, buying the next cheap thing. And the thing is that they don't even make these things fixable for the most part. They're stamped out or particle board or just something that can just get the job done temporarily. It's night and day difference from, say, going and buying some furniture from the Amish, which will probably outlast your grandchildren. Right. But, you know, it's like we said, Jason, engineered to fail. But there's there's a whole other side of this that needs to be considered. When you think about how much junk, I mean, low-quality junk is being manufactured in China, then take a moment to consider even the packaging. This kind of, I forget what they call it, bubble packaging or the hard plastic that's nearly impossible to open unless you have a blade of some sort. Old people almost can never open it. Um, this kind of shrink-wrapped hard plastic. Producing that volume of junk over you know, a decade, can you imagine the resources that are just being wasted? And every product being so low quality, it's just going to get thrown away in a short period of time and need to be replaced. This is an unsustainable model. And for my part, I think technology and the unemployment and the reduction in races that we have talked about, where we can show by the year 2021 or whatever it was, Jason, unless there's a significant change in birth rates, many races are going to be headed for extinction. I think it's all understood and planned at the highest level levels. And I think this whole shift to make all this crap in China, which replaced quality items that used to be made native to the countries that now buy from China, is part of the game we're looking at. Because this game is unsustainable. You cannot continue to make this volume of junk and all its packaging indefinitely. Well, who makes all that packaging? What is that stuff made out of? It's plastic. plastic. Yeah, for the most part. <laughs> and who makes plastic? Where does plastic come from? Petroleum. 
So you think that the big boys in the petroleum industry don't know what's going on? Oh, I think they do. Yeah, it makes you wonder, you know, how everyone's always looked for tin cans to recycle. When's the technology going to be big and front and center and mainstream where all types of plastic are what's actually sought after? We could see days like that too, Jason. Hard to know. We're going to be covering in hour two some very critical points here about technology, and we've shifted them to hour two, uh, particularly on the face of the censorship of episode 44, which, by the way, go see episode 44. If you get through all the nonsense screens trying to convince you that some devil's going to be released from Hades, if you look at that video, there's actually an option for input. Many people have offered their input, but cut to the chase here. Hour two, we're going to unleash all the things that probably don't fly very well in hour one anymore, and it's going to be a hell of an episode, and I will state again, in the same way Frank Herbert, the author of Dune, could predict in 65 a thing like the Butlerian Jihad, we can absolutely logic out what's about to happen to all of us as technology moves forward and becomes so overwhelming uh, as to be unbelievable, a bit like a Ready Player One existence. And for my money, which we will cover in hour two, Ready Player One is a much better prediction of the future than The Matrix. Unfortunately, The Matrix leads too many minds too far into fantasy. That brings hour one of episode 139 to a close. We hope to see you all over at crow 7 radiocom where free speech rules. There it is, man. Cheers.